0: Hebrews chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, just look on someone next to you. If you have a Bible and the person next to you doesn't, make sure you share with them, okay? So We're going to cover a lot of verses today. We're going to study pretty intently the scriptures here, so you'll help the person out next to you if they don't have a Bible. Let them look on with you. We're going to continue our study of Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to cover verses 10 through 13 this morning. Let's read the text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll talk about it. So Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, referring to God the Father, it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the the congregation, I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is before us, and we ask that you would give us understanding. Uh, There's a lot of stuff in this text, Lord. There's a lot of richness, and, and we need some background info. And so, Lord, would you please help us to understand. We believe in the doctrine of perpiscuity. That is that your word is to be understandable. You mean to communicate to humanity. And so help us where we lack understanding. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come as a teacher of all things and that you would instruct us. I submit my thoughts, my mind, and my mouth to you. And ask the Holy Spirit you'd speak to us because we need Jesus. We need more of Jesus in our lives. We need more of the truth and the benefits of the cross function in our lives. And so Jesus, snap our hearts to attention. Become much larger in our hearts and in our minds right now. And teach us about yourself. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week we started a four-part series on the work of the cross, or the benefits of the cross, or what Jesus Christ has accomplished on behalf of humanity. A four-part series on some of, not all of, on some of the benefits of the cross is revealed to us here in Hebrews chapter four. Last week, part one, we covered this topic, that Jesus through the cross has recaptured our lost destiny. We talked about that. This week, we're gonna talk about the fact that Jesus through the cross Has recovered our lost unity. Next week, Jesus through the cross has released us from satanic bondage. Amen. Amen. And then the following week, the fact that Jesus restores us in times of failure. We want to remember for our study this morning that this book was originally written to Hebrew Christians. That is, Christians who were of uh, Jewish descendants, and uh, they were previously practicing Judaism. They recognized Jesus as the Savior. They recognized Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. They gave their lives to him. They've been following the Lord. And then Nero has become the Caesar in Rome. And Nero's fallen upon difficult times, and he's found a convenient scapegoat in the church And so Nero has begun persecuting the church. And what we're dealing with in the book of Hebrews is an original audience that are being threatened for their very existence. Some of them that received this letter no doubt went on to be martyred. Many more will be martyred. Peter and Paul, church history tells us, were martyred during this wave of persecution. So we're dealing with a group of Christians who have fallen upon a very difficult time. A scary time, a threatening time, a time of great uncertainty. And this audience, though they're facing great difficulties, has a rich biblical history. They're very aware of the Old Testament and its teachings and all the stories and all of the truths. And so they were aware of the fact that through the fall of man, man lost his destiny His destiny to be with God and his destiny to rule and reign in the earth with God. And that was the subject of our our topic last week. So the author last week was telling them that that destiny is only restored through the person of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross. That's the only way for man's lost destiny to be restored is through the cross of Jesus Christ. He wants to impress this upon them because they're feeling tempted to go back to Judaism. Their Christianity isn't working out the way that they thought it would, quite frankly. They thought that Jesus was going to establish the kingdom in the here and now. And Even in the, in the book of Acts chapter 1, they said, Is it at this time, Lord, that you're going to establish the kingdom? They expected the kingdom to be established, Jesus to be ruling and reigning, and them to be ruling and reigning with him. But things haven't worked out that way. Rome is still the world power. And now Rome has become anti-Christian. Christians once were a favored religion because they were seen as a sect of Judaism. Now they are religio illicita. That is an illegal religion. And being a Christian has become punishable by death. Their Christianity is not working out the way they thought it would. They're not seeing thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It just isn't playing out the way that they expected. And so they're beginning to think, what should we do? This isn't what we thought it would would be. Maybe we go back to Judaism. Maybe that was the right way, and we kind of got sidetracked with this Jesus thing. And so last week, the author was telling them, no, the only way that all of humanity will ever be restored to its lost destiny to be with God is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to tell them in this week's passage that they can be restored to unity with God only through the cross. And, And unity becomes a primary word in our thought process here. Because everything that they knew about Judaism communicated a degree, a great degree of separation between them and God. If you're familiar with the uh, Jewish worship structure, they had originally the tabernacle as ordained by God. And the tabernacle had walls and not everybody could go in, only some people could go in. And once you went in, you were very aware that you had to wash, you had to cleanse, and you had to sacrifice. There had to be a blood sacrifice on your behalf. And then you could be in the place where God said he would meet with his people. But there was yet another degree of separation there was another wall there that surrounded the holy of holies and into the the holy place, excuse me, and into the holy place, only the priests could go. The rest of Israel was excluded from getting that much closer to the presence of God. The presence of God was separated by yet another veil in a place called the holy of holies, And there only one man, the high priest, once a year could enter in. So everything about the structure, the building, the sacrifices, the washing, the cleansing, the exclusivity, everything about their former life in Judaism communicated to them separation from God. There was a degree of connectivity in that they were God's people, but there was not a real communal unity with the presence of God. There was a degree of separation. And now the author of Hebrews is telling them, listen, I know you're not seeing the end of Christianity yet. I know you've fallen on hard times, or rather, they're falling on you. I know you're afraid and uncertain, but don't go back to Judaism. Our unity with God is only realized through the cross of Jesus Christ. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said in John 14, 6. Amen? Amen. Now, immediately there, the Jewish mind, to a certain degree, takes offense Because in the Jewish mind, they were used to the prophets who were performing signs and wonders. They were used to Moses who stretched forth his staff and the Red Sea was parted. They were used to Moses who would speak to the rock and the water would come forth from the rock. They were used to Joshua who would tell the elders of Israel to put their feet in the Jordan and the Jordan would be held back. They were used to Elijah who called down fire from heaven. They were used to great and mighty prophets. And so the idea of a Messiah of Israel who would be spit upon, mocked, beaten, scourged, despised, and crucified was an offense to them. And the prevailing world culture was that of Greco-Romanism. It was a a Roman Empire strongly influenced by Hellenism or Greek culture. And they highly esteemed philosophy and education and oratorial skills and rhetoric and sly arguments. And to them, the broader culture, to them, the idea of somebody being a savior who was beaten, who was mocked, who was scourged, who was spit upon, who was crucified, crucified, and said nothing in his defense, well, to them, that was an offense. It didn't make any sense at all. And so we have this statement in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. So not everybody in the culture got it. It didn't fit with their concept of greatness that he came and suffered for others. Now, generally speaking, in years past in America and in Europe, In years past, when you would speak about the cross of Jesus Christ, most of the population had some context. Most of the population had, in years past, decades past, grown up in somewhat of a Christian, at least pseudo-Christian culture. And so when you spoke about the cross and Jesus' suffering, there was a context, so it was more readily acceptable to them. That is not the case today. We are living in a post-Christian era. We are living in a biblically illiterate society. We are living in a time where the cross must be explained, where when you teach about a suffering savior, when you speak about us getting to glory through one who is beaten and mocked and despised and that we too, as his people, will be despised, it's hard for the modern mind to understand that. And so the author of Hebrews, anticipating this from his audience and ours as well, says this in verse 10. It was fitting for God, for whom, <clears throat> excuse me, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation that is Jesus through sufferings. Notice, he says that the cross was the fitting thing for God to do. Another translation says, it was only right for God to do it in this way. It could be translated, the Greek word is prepo. It could be translated only right, fitting, becoming, appropriate, or suitable. In other words, the cross of Jesus Christ and a Savior who suffered was the suitable, right, fitting, appropriate, becoming thing for God to do. Which means... The cross of Jesus Christ is according to and consistent with the character of God. It is according to and consistent with the character and the nature of God. That is to say, the cross was not a logical necessity. It's not as though God was playing a chess game with humanity and humanity made this move and God said, "Uh uh-oh, what am I gonna do? I know what I'll do, the cross, checkmate. It wasn't that. It wasn't a logical necessity. It was not a circumstantial obligation. Understand and know that man's sin did not obligate God to do anything about it. So it's not that it's merely a logical necessity, nor is it a circumstantial obligation. Rather, the cross is according to the inner quality of God's being, it is consistent with his nature and with his ways. Let me explain. God is by nature a savior, amen? God is by nature, core identity, part of who God is, and in inescapable an truth, God is a savior. At the same time, God is by nature holy. Now, the holiness of God dictates that he cannot allow sin to go unchecked. The holiness of God dictates that he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That then puts sinful humanity in peril. But God is also by nature a savior. And the fact that he is a savior dictates that he cannot but save those who are in peril. The fact that he is a savior means he saves. He's like the ultimate lifeguard. When he sees those who are in danger, he intends on saving them. So he is by nature holy, so he cannot overlook sin, but he is by nature a savior, and so he wants to save those who are affected by sin. Now furthermore, God is by nature love. Amen? Amen. First John says God is love. And God is by nature righteous. And the righteousness of God, the justice of God, a core component of his nature, demands payment for sin. It is inescapable. He does not extend mercy without payment. That would be to allow sin to go unchecked. That would be to treat the righteous and the unrighteous alike, the wicked and the unwicked alike. His righteous character demands payment for sin. But God is also by nature love. And the fact that God is love demands that he himself offer to make the payment on our behalf. He is by nature holy. He will not allow sin to go unchecked or unpunished but he is by nature a savior. He desires to save those who are affected by sin. He is by nature righteous, so there must be a payment for that sin, but he is by nature love, so he offers to pay for us. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the sweet reasonableness of the cross of Jesus Christ, that according to God's character, not man's wisdom, But according to God's character, a suffering Savior makes all the sense in the world because what he does is dies a substitutionary death on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he takes our sin and our filth and our guilt and our debt and our failures... And he deals with them on the cross and exchanges for us beauty for those ashes. Life where there was death. Freedom where there was captivity. Newness where there was rotting. Incorruptibility where there was corruption. That is the cross of Jesus Christ. And for God to save humanity that way was fitting only right and consistent according to his nature as a savior, his nature as holy, his nature as righteous, and his nature as love. Now it says there that it was fitting in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. The author of our salvation being referred to is Jesus Christ. What does it mean that God perfected him through sufferings? Well, we know what it can't mean, right? It can't mean that Jesus was lacking something, morally or otherwise, and so he was bettered somehow by suffering. That is not what it means. The book of Hebrews will go on to say that he is holy, innocent, pure, undefiled, separate from sinners. There's no need for improvement in the person of Jesus Christ. So when it says perfect, it's a very old word. And it's from another language, so it's hard for us to understand. But it doesn't mean what we intuitively think it means, that Jesus had to somehow get better to save us. That's not what it's saying. The Greek word here is teleao, teleao. It has as its root, it's a verb, teleau, to make perfect. It has as its root the noun telos, which means end or goal. So the idea of the word is to get something to its end, to get something to its goal, to get something to its final accomplishment is the idea of the word. So it was fitting for God that Jesus would suffer by which our salvation is accomplished. Jesus, as the Messiah said differently, is brought to his intended goal of saving humanity only through suffering. If there was any other way, we have a problem with the Garden of Gethsemane experience. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times, Father, if there's any other way, let's do that. Let this cup pass from before me. If there's any way to save fallen humanity other than the cross, let's do it. If there were another way that was consistent with the character and the nature of God as holy, as a savior, as just and as love, if there were any other way for us to be saved and God did not answer the prayer of Jesus Christ, then we would have a sadistic God because his death, on the sun, his death of the Son on the cross was horrific. So it was fitting that he would reach the end goal of saving the world as Messiah by suffering on our behalf because humanity was suffering under the curse of sin we talked about last week. The fall of man, the curse of sin, and Jesus became a curse for us and so removes the effects and the power of the curse from our life and from all of the world and we'll see the ultimate fulfillment of that in the millennial kingdom as we spoke of last week. Notice here that Jesus is called the author of our salvation. The Greek word is archagos. Author of our salvation. Another weird word, but what does it mean? It has all these ideas involved in it Author, founder, leader, hero, captain, champion, pioneer. It means that Jesus is the beginning, the originator, the first cause, the champion, the accomplisher of our salvation. Amen? Amen. Now, read verse 11 or 10 again with that in mind. For it was fitting for God, for whom are all things speaking of him as, as, as the ultimate consummation of creation, the reason, and through whom are all things, the creator of all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author, the champion, of their salvation through sufferings. Now, notice what the goal is here. The goal of God in salvation is to bring many sons to glory. Somebody ought to be happy about that. The goal of God in salvation is to bring many sons to glory. To bring us to glory, ultimately, it means to bring us into union and communion with Himself. To bring us into union and communion with Himself. To bring us into glory. To restore us to that place for which God purposed us prior to the fall. So, a facet of the cross is revealed in the text today is to recover our lost unity. He wants to bring many sons to glory, to unity and communion with God. The picture is of a great family procession as it winds its way through life and moves ever upward toward glory. The picture is a procession of us being led and who's leading us. The author, the pioneer, the captain, the champion of our salvation, Jesus Christ. And we follow him. There is a goal of the Christian life, is to follow He wants to lead many sons to glory. If you're going to be a Christian, you must, by definition, follow Christ. By definition. If you're going to be a Christian, you must then follow Christ. And his promise is that he will get us to the other side. His promise is that he will get us to glory. He will deliver us to that place. He is able to do so. And notice... It says not just that he wants to bring a few to glory, but he wants to bring many to glory. Somebody ought to be happy about that. He wants to bring many to glory. The sense is an innumerable multitude. He desires that none should perish, it says in 2 Peter 3.9. We get a picture of it in the book of Revelation in chapter 7. It says in verses 9 and 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great Multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. It's glory. And they cried out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and unto the lamb. Notice here we have the multitude and glory and they Are innumerable. God is a savior. And so we wonder why we don't see more people saved. Or at least we want to see more people saved. Let me say this. The deficiency is not in God. The deficiency is not in the cross. The deficiency is not in the power of the Holy Spirit, whom John 16 says convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. If there is to be a deficiency identified, it is the representatives of Jesus Christ. We want to see more saved. There seems to be a possible deficiency. It can't be in God. It can't be in the cross. It can't be in the spirit. If there is a deficiency, it's in those who were called to represent. It's those who were called to vocalize. Those who were called to be ambassadors of Christ Jesus. The called, anointed, ordained representatives so often, too often fail to represent. I don't want anybody to feel condemned today but I do want to say to all of us that we need to get better in our representation of the person of Jesus Christ. I do want to say that we need to get more holy in our living and more vocal in our preaching. Nobody else has been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are his chosen ambassadors. The angels do not preach the gospel until Revelation chapter 16. If you're planning on being around then, cool, join with the angel. Until then... We are the ones who are given the task of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And he is a willing savior. We are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. Faith comes by hearing. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. But how shall they hear unless someone preaches to them? Our responsibility, nay, our privilege and honor an occupation in this life is to represent Jesus Christ to a lost, dying, hurt, broken, tormented, rip-off, fearful world. We have the answer. We know how humanity is restored to its destiny. We know how humanity is restored to unity with God. We have the answer. I want you to notice that This procession being led by Jesus Christ is bringing in many sons to glory. They are called sons. They're not called salvation units. They are called sons, denoting that what God intends for us through the cross of Jesus Christ is a love relationship, a family relationship, a relationship of intimacy whereby we cry out in our hearts to God, Abba, Father. Abba Father, Abba being Aramaic for Daddy, where we have an intimate cry in our hearts because of the Holy Spirit in us of intimacy toward God. A restored unity, a restored relationship, one of love, intimacy, and a family relationship whereby God is our Father and Christ is our brother. He calls us his brethren in this passage where we are the brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus and the co-heirs of Christ Jesus. And as brothers and sisters and co-heirs, when we get to glory, we won't just be there. We will be participatory in the glory. It's not that we just arrive as spectators, but we arrive as co-heirs and his brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus who are identified with him and in him and by his righteousness, it's not as though you will get to heaven and the Father will say, oh, hmm. you know, you're lucky you made it here. <laughs> just barely, Britt. I mean, you just barely made It's not gonna be like that. Because you see, our core identity is now with Christ Jesus. And the Father only looks at us through the lens of Jesus. Hence, Jesus calls us brethren. Hence, we are co-heirs of all that is. And so the Father will welcome us with open arms, and we will be in glory with him. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the only way to get there. Amen? Amen. In the meantime, in this life, there is suffering. In this life, there is suffering. Now, let me make a delineation here. I, I am not talking about, nor is the text talking about, the kind of suffering that is general to humanity, though that's a real issue. That's a real issue when God deals with that, and God will deal with that. But that's not the context of the book of Hebrews immediately. We're not talking about the fact that people die. We're not talking about the fact that people get diseases. We're not talking about accidents. We're talking about, in the context here, suffering for righteousness' sake suffering for righteousness' sake, being persecuted for doing the right thing, being deprived for representing Jesus Christ, being marginalized for following King Jesus. In this life, for those who follow the Lord, there will be a degree of suffering. It's hard for us to comprehend as American Christians because we just haven't experienced this. Our persecution comes in the form of scant legislation. It comes in the form of offhand comments in the office or family members disassociating themselves from us. Those things are real, and those things are hurtful, but doesn't really qualify as persecution in the Bible. Paul the apostle, now he knew what it was to suffer for righteousness' sake. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells us about his ministry. Paul says that he was beat five times with rods. That was a Roman form of torture meant to dismantle a man. Paul was beat five times with rods. Three times he was scourged in the same manner that Jesus was with a cat of nine tails. A handle with nine leather, leather strips with pieces of bone and metal woven into them designed to rip the flesh from the back of your neck to the back of the knees off the body and expose your inner organs. Three times Paul was beaten with a cat of nine tails. One time he was stoned, that means stones this big, thrown at his face and his body and left for dead. He was shipwrecked on a couple of occasions and he spent a whole night and a whole day floating around in the water when he was trying to get somewhere to preach the gospel to them. He was in danger from his countrymen who hated him and he was in danger from Gentiles who hated him. He was in danger from, ro- from rivers and he was in danger from robbers. He knew what it was like to endeavor to serve Jesus, to set out on God's mission, missio dei, to set out on God's mission and to have to go without water and to have to go without food. He knew what it was like to be so vexed in his spirit in serving God that he stayed up all night long. And yet, Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. Paul says, these things, I don't sweat them. Why? Because of the glory. Because Jesus Christ is leading many sons to glory. Because the story isn't over yet. Because our salvation is in three stages, three tenses, and the future tense is glory. And I'm going there, and Jesus is going to get me there. And because of the hope, because of the promise, because of the power of the person of Jesus Christ, I am not overwhelmed by the circumstances of this life. Amen. He says in 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18, <clears throat> Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, can anybody identify? (laughs) Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, look what he calls these things. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, this is key, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, for Christians who are being persecuted, and we can't relate, for Christians who are being persecuted, the protocol for them is to fix their eyes on eternity, The protocol for them is to realize that Jesus will get them to glory. The protocol for them is to realize that this earth is not the place of our citizenship, that our citizenship is in heaven, that these things are temporal and are passing, but there is a city who is built by God to which we look forward, and God will get us there. Now, we can't relate, but our missionary in China, she understands this, Our missionary in northern Iraq, she understands this. Our brothers and sisters in Indonesia, they understand this. Our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka, our brothers and sisters in India, our missionaries that are translating the Bible right now down in Venezuela, they understand this. There are brothers and sisters around the world who are being disfigured, dismembered, disassociated, and marginalized simply for following Jesus Christ. And to them, these are words of life. To the fat church in America, it goes over our heads. But I am urging us to hold fast to these words because there is coming a time where the world will be more antichrist than it is now. The Bible is explicit about that. That in the last days, the love of many will wax cold, and people will be haters of good and haters of one another. And they will deny Jesus Christ all the more before the end comes. And we are living in a country that has historically been favorable to Christianity, but do not bank on it. Even our own little city is beginning to legislate against the church in this town. I'm telling you, persecution is coming to America. There will be a day where I am endangered for preaching the biblical view of homosexuality there will be a day where we may lose our tax-exempt status as a church because we teach what the Bible says. There will be a day in this country where the government will force the church to perform homosexual weddings. And if we choose to take a stand for righteousness and the word of God and the identity of Jesus Christ, then we will be persecuted. Mark my words, the days are coming to America. You can avoid persecution your whole life if you want to. It's very simple, five ways. Number one, abandon the high view of Christ as taught in the scriptures. You'll avoid persecution. Number two, Don't tell other people that they need Jesus. You'll avoid persecution. Number three, accept the world's morals and standards. Number four, laugh at the world's jokes and smile when Christ is dishonored. Number five, ignore the sin and wickedness around you. If you do those five things, then you will be able to avoid persecution. But you will not be honoring Jesus Christ. You will maintain political correctness but you will err in biblical correctness. If you choose to do the following things, then you will sooner or later be persecuted to a degree or another. If you, number one, espouse the supremacy of Jesus Christ above all others. If you, number two, insist that he is the only way to salvation. If you, number three, reject the world's moral consensus. If you, number four, Weep when Christ is dishonored. And if you, number five, attempt to deal with sin and wickedness and pursue justice, then you will be persecuted. And at that time, you must fix your eyes on Christ. It's inevitable. Paul told Peter, everyone who desires, or Paul told Timothy, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted persecuted. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But Paul said, I count everything of the world rubbish in light of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ everything that we are normally tempted to cling to and to fight for and to hold on to, from which we derive our identity and our comfort and our security. Paul said, I count those things as rubbish in light of the surpassing value of knowing, knowing Jesus Christ. And he says, I want to know him in his resurrection and in his suffering in Philippians 3. Why? Because for those who suffer according to righteousness, There is the promise of a wonderful experience of the presence of the person of Jesus Christ. His grace will sustain those who are experiencing those things. We can't relate, but there are brothers and sisters in jail cells right now around the world. There are children whose parents were ripped and taken from them and they will never see them again because their parents preached Jesus Christ. And Jesus will sustain them. He will meet them in the prisons. He will meet them in the places of torture. He will meet the children who have been ripped from their parents. He promises that he will do so. I want you to see that in First Peter. First Peter chapter 5, go there. 1 Peter chapter 5, we see here that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, for those of us that will suffer according to righteousness, he will strengthen us both in our unity with the body of Christ worldwide and our unity with Christ himself. We'll start in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all of your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Let that sink in. He cares for you. Cast your worries upon him. He cares for you. Verse eight. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But resist him. Remember the promise of James 4 7? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. There has always been, there has always been true believers in Jesus Christ who have suffered for their faith. And anybody else who suffers according to righteousness' sake, to whatever degree you took a stand at work, you got fired. To whatever degree, know that you are not alone. Resist the enemy who wants to come in and take advantage in those times of uncertainty, in those times of fear, in those times of difficulty. Resist him knowing that the same experiences of sufferings are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Verse 10, look at this promise. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you To his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Look at that promise. Look at that promise. Yeah, if you want to praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Go back to verse 11 of Hebrews 2, please. And look at this promise of unity here. This is unbelievable. Hebrews chapter two verse 11, the restored unity we have with Christ and God through the cross, Hebrews chapter two verse 11, says, "For both he who sanctifies talking about Jesus and those who are sanctified talking about Christians are all from one Father, for which reason He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren." Listen to that phraseology. First of all, there can be no greater expression of intimacy with God. The Father is ours and we are His. Jesus said that when we pray, we should pray our Father. He included Him in that statement. The Father is ours, we are His. And notice this, Christ is our brother. Yes, he's also our king. He's also our savior. He's also our lord. But he also calls himself our brother. And the the showstopper, the game winner, the unbelievable statement is what he says there. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Wait a minute. There is so much about me that he should be ashamed of. There is so much about me that is shameful. There is so much about me that is wrong. I know what I think in my own head. I know what I do when nobody else is around. I know my own attitude. I know my own wickedness and perversion. There is so much to me to be ashamed of. But Jesus says, I am not ashamed to call them brethren. He is not ashamed. Why? Why? Because he overlooks sin? Because he extends mercy without satisfaction? Never. Never. He is holy and he is righteous. He demands payment. Jesus paid the price so that God could not look upon my shame and my filth so that he could see me as pure and washed and clean and forgiven and free and holy and healed and accepted. And so Jesus says, I am not ashamed to call Britt my brother. I'm not ashamed to call Bruce my brother. I'm not ashamed to call Dave my brother. I'm not ashamed to call Mike and Amaret my brothers and my sisters. I am not ashamed to call them my own. But amen. Praise the Lord if you're going to praise the Lord. So shouldn't we then not be ashamed of him? Shouldn't we then be the loudest, proudest, saved sinners the world has ever known? Shouldn't then there be no power that could stop us from proclaiming Jesus Christ? Should we then endeavor to never acquiesce to political forces? Should we then endeavor to never yield in the righteousness of Christ? Should we not then endeavor to take a stand for who he is and his unique identity as the only savior of the world? If he is not ashamed of us, we can never again be ashamed of him. We can never again be ashamed of him. There is something wrong with us because we so often are. I don't want to condemn anybody because there's a common denominator amongst us. But because it's common, doesn't make it right. It's wrong. What is wrong with Jesus Christ that we're afraid to talk about him in Starbucks? What is wrong with the creator of the universe that we don't want to bring him up in the classroom? What deficiency, what perversion, what failure is there in God that we don't want to bring him up in the workplace? Is it because we yield to political correctness? Is it because we've bought a lie of church and state? I'm sorry, my citizenship is not in the U.S. of A. It's in the kingdom of God. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Therefore, it says in verse 12, saying, okay, the Lord saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Notice what he says in verse 12. I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. Now, that's a quotation of Psalm 22, verse 22. We all know that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that talks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 1,000 years before it ever took place. The opening line of the psalm is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That thing which Jesus said when he was upon the cross. And then the rest of the psalm goes on to explain in detail the mocking against him. And the form of his crucifixion, it even says they have pierced my hands and my feet a thousand years before the cross ever took place and hundreds of years before the cross was ever invented as a form of execution. And then after speaking about the cross of Jesus Christ and the humiliation and the shame and him being forsaken... And him being pierced, then it turns a corner. And in verse 22, the psalmist says, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. Here we have a triumphant declaration of the risen Lord Jesus Christ who is in glory. And what he says he will do because of the cross and his resurrection is he will proclaim the name of the Father to you and I. Understand that name in the Old Testament context is also always associated with character. You can know something about God because of what you observe through created things, Romans chapter one. You can know much about God through the written word. But for those who are Christians that are brought back into unity with God through the cross of Jesus Christ, the declaration of Jesus here is, I will proclaim thy name, God, to my brethren. In other words, I will explain continually your character to them. I will reveal to them your heart. I will further explain to them your love and your mercy and your grace. That's what Jesus does. Having brought us near, he declares the character of God to us continually. Remember, he's the exact representation of God. And then he says, in the midst of the congregation... I will sing thy praise. Notice that. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. Remember that I talked about the picture of the processional being led to glory by the champion of our salvation, Jesus Christ. I I think that this verse also talks about the fact that when we suffer for righteousness sake and we bear up underneath it and we choose to praise the Lord anyway, that Jesus leads us in that praise that Jesus leads that us in that praise. Is there a precedent for Jesus leading people in a fearful situation into praise? You better believe it. The Last Supper, Passover, the night before the cross, it says in Matthew 26 that after singing a hymn, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. They sat around the Last Supper and they sang a hymn together. Who was the rabbi at the table? Who was the worship leader? Who do you think led those troubled disciples who had already been revealed to them? Judas would betray them, would betray Jesus, who were already in a fearful state. He had already said, I'm going to the cross. Who was the one who led them in singing a hymn to God the Father but Jesus Christ himself? And so I believe that those who are imprisoned, prison, those who are pressured, those who are fearful, those who are broken, those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, for righteousness sake, the Lord Jesus Christ leads them in praises to the Father. And I think he does the same for you and I when we gather. He says in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing thy praises. You know what John Calvin says about this? John Calvin, he says, this teaching is the very strongest encouragement to us to bring yet more fervent zeal to the praise of God when we hear that Christ leads our praise and is the chief conductor of our hymns. You see, when we think about it in that light, that he's not ashamed of us, when we think about Zephaniah chapter three, that, said, that says God rejoices over us with song, It should change the way that we worship. We should be the most fervent, psycho, happy, clappy freaks you've ever seen because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That we were far off and we've been brought near. Let's finish now. The last verse, verse 13 says, And again, I will put my trust in him. Remember, these words are pictured as being spoken by Jesus. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. To understand this, we have to go to Isaiah chapter eight and we'll finish right there. Go to Isaiah chapter eight. Now, Isaiah chapter eight is full of messianic imagery. That is, it's full of of imagery and prophecies about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's even surrounded, Isaiah chapter 8, by some of the greatest prophecies concerning Jesus. For example, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You ought to know this one. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So there's a great prophecy about Jesus Christ. Look in chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So what we have then in these chapters is a bunch of rich, Imagery and prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, about his first coming and his second coming. Now, the immediate context of chapter eight is that Isaiah is a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. He's a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. And and Judah has some enemies who are coming against it. They're gonna have a militarily difficult time and are having a difficult time. And Isaiah comes as a prophet of God and they're rejecting him. They're not receiving his message. They're not listening to them. But the whole kingdom is in a whole lot of trouble, and yet they're rejecting the prophet of God. And it's in that context of rejection that Isaiah says in verse 7 of chapter 8, Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 8, 17, and I will wait for the Lord, or I will put my trust in, In the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, I will even look eagerly for him. Now that first part of verse 17 was quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13, where it said, I will put my trust in him. What's being explained to us is this. Isaiah, when he was rejected and when his people were in danger, had to trust the Lord. He said, I will wait for him. I will even look eagerly for him. Jesus... Suffered for righteousness sake. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was despised. And Jesus made the same declaration. We see it explained in 1 Peter 2, verse 23, about Jesus. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Righteously. The protocol for Isaiah, the protocol for Christ, the protocol for you and I in times of difficulty is to entrust ourselves to the Lord. The context is very specific. It's about suffering for righteousness sake. But the protocol is the same. First Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his footsteps. If there should come a day that we as this church in this community, we as the church in America, we as a universal church in the world should suffer a greater degree of persecution, there's a protocol given to us. Trust the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Look eagerly for the Lord. Cling to him. Cling to him. You see, the problem is the people in the book of Hebrews, they were starting to depart from him. They were experiencing what we hope we will never experience. Their lives were threatened by governmental powers. And their initial response was, that's it, I'm withdrawing from my Christianity, I'm withdrawing from my Christian community, and I'm withdrawing from Christ. And the author here is saying, wait a minute. Jesus knew what it was like to suffer under governing ruling authorities. He himself was reviled and despised and mocked and beaten, but he didn't revile in return. He entrusted himself to the one who was faithful. When you encounter the same thing, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He is faithful. He walked on the water to save his disciples who were in a sinking ship. Trust the Lord. And then it says, back in our text of Hebrews 2.13, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So Jesus says that himself and the children that has been given to him will trust the Lord. Okay. This just takes two more minutes of explanation. Are you cool? You're going to give me two more minutes? We sure? Yes. Okay, listen. That's verse 18 that's being quoted. It says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, and that's as much as it's quoted in Isaiah, and then it says, are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. The immediate context in the book of Isaiah is that Isaiah, when he says, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are referring to his own two physical sons. And he says that he together with his sons in that moment of trouble were a sign for the rest of Israel that God is faithful. He and his two sons were a sign for the rest of Israel that God is faithful and dwells on Mount Zion. Now his sons, get this, his sons had each been given prophetic names. The first one was named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Maher Shalal Hashbaz what does that mean? That means the spoil speeds the prey haste. Oh, thanks a lot. That really clarifies it. What does that mean? That signifies that Judah's enemies would very soon be defeated. The deliverance was coming that the armies that threatened them would not do so forever. Maher Shalah, Hashbaz, the spoil speeds and the prey haste signifying Judah could expect deliverance soon. His other son was named Shair Jashub. Shair Jashub, what does that mean? A remnant shall return. So, God was prophetically communicating to the southern kingdom of Judah through the two sons of Isaiah the prophet that the deliverance is coming soon and a remnant shall return. God will preserve his people. Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. So, the picture here is Isaiah, whom everyone knows has a name that means Yahweh is salvation placing his hand upon his firstborn is the way that I picture it, which means your deliverance is coming soon. And his hand upon his secondborn, whose name means there shall be a remnant. And he stands before Judah and says, we are signs and wonders before you that God is faithful. Those words are taken from Isaiah and placed in the context of Jesus saying them alongside the persecuted church. It is Jesus coming to those who are in trouble and putting his arms around them and saying, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And every Jew, Every Hebrew Christian knew that that was a quotation from Isaiah 8 and that he was talking about the fact that they would be delivered from governmental powers and that Jesus would always preserve a remnant in the church and he puts his arms around those who are suffering and says, sons, daughters, I will get you to glory. He who promised is faithful. Amen? Amen. Before I pray, by way of application, don't move yet, I see you moving. (laughs) We must make application. Number one, in times of difficulty, are you pursuing unity? In times of difficulty, are you pursuing unity? Because the tendency for a lot of people is to break unity with Christ and with the body of Christ. You were offended. (laughs) Whatever. In times of difficulty, are you pursuing unity? Because the cross of Jesus Christ has brought us unity with God and with one another. And so if things are hard, cling to the unity. Cling to the unity. And the last thing I'll say is this. When times are difficult, are you being led in praises to the Father or are you grumbling and complaining? Only you know. Lord, help us to rightly apply your word Help us to cling to you and to one another as brothers and sisters united by the blood and the cross of Jesus Christ in difficult times. Help us, Lord. Thank you for speaking words of encouragement to this church in the book of Hebrews and to this church in Carpinteria. Thank you that you're with us even until the end of the age. Thank you that you put your arms around those who are marginalized and oppressed and afraid and uncertain. And you say, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Thank you that you will get us to glory. Lord, lead us in praises to the Father. Don't let us be grumblers and complainers. Don't let us be self-absorbed ones, but lead us in praises to the Father. Father, we just declare together that there's no deficiency in you. We're sorry that we were ever ashamed of the gospel. We're sorry that we don't confess your name when we ought to. There's no deficiency in you. You are altogether lovely. You are perfect and beautiful and awesome in all your ways. Jesus, lead us and praises and hymns to the Father. If you need help today, the prayer team is here. Let's sing to the Father.